2: Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's The Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson.
1: It is Friday, March 10th, 2023. Happy Friday. And welcome in to The Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson here every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern with all of you. And if you can't listen live across our great affiliates or on the stream or Fox Nation or Odyssey.com, you've got options. We have a podcast as well where you can listen to the entire show on demand for free after it's over. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. That includes Bonus Benson over the weekend, by the way. Speaking over the weekend, I'll be joining Trey Gowdy Sunday night in America. That's Sunday evening on Fox News Channel, so hope you will tune in for that. On the radio side, here's the lineup. Shannon Bream, anchor of Fox News Sunday. She will join us in the next hour. As will Dr. Marty McCary. Dr. Fauci was on Fox News yesterday talking to Neil Cavuto, and he said a few things. Dr. McCary has some thoughts. We'll ask him about those. In our middle hour and in our final hour, just after 5 p.m. Eastern House Majority Leader Steve Scalise. Republican of Louisiana, he will be our guest looking forward to all of that on this Friday edition of the show. There's a lot to get to here, as always. It's like never a dull moment, never a shortage of topics. I want to talk about 2024 presidential politics a little bit later on this hour, some interesting stuff going on. We'll get into that, but before we do that, I know this is probably not the most burning news story of the day, and yet it just bothers me so much that I'm going to take the prerogative as host of the show to showcase it first, right out of the gate. Colin Kaepernick, the former NFL quarterback, hasn't been an elite player in a very long time, which is why he lost his job. I know he's got his own story on that. And now he's basically this racial, grievance-mongering gadfly and attention seeker. That's his full-time job now. His latest foray into that realm is a graphic novel that he has collaborated on about his life because, according to Colin Kaepernick, nothing is more fascinating than his life. And all the grave injustices that he, a multimillionaire, has had to weather in this awful, rotten country of ours that's been so terrible to him. So in this graphic novel, he's decided to sort of go down the Harry and Meghan path and criticize his own family. Because at some point you run out of material and victim stories to tell, especially when you're driving around in— flashy sports cars and you've got tons of money and you're this giant celebrity. It's sort of difficult to play the victim all the time, although he certainly does it and does it in a very lucrative way. So in this graphic novel, he is going after his parents. He criticizes his own parents, his adoptive parents who took him in when he was a few months old. He was given up for adoption by his biological mother. The Kaepernick family took him in, they poured everything into him, they made him their son. And he very magnanimously says that he does know that they loved him, so that's generous of him. But I guess the love in return flowing back to his parents isn't quite strong enough to prevent him from publicly trashing them as kind of racist and problematic. When he was growing up and you just need material, right? I guess if this is your racket, if this is the way you're going to make money and get attention, you need to constantly dredge up new material. And if that means bad mouthing and painting in a bad light, your own freaking parents who adopted you and gave you everything and set you up for success in life in a loving, stable, wonderful family, I guess that's the cost of doing business for Colin Kaepernick. So here's what he said. This is Cut 29. This is on CBS, promoting this graphic novel of his. Listen.
0: It's his true high school coming-of-age story, his journey embracing his blackness, despite resistance from many, including his white adoptive parents.
3: I know my parents love me. But there were still very problematic things that I went through. I think it was important to show that, no, this can happen in your own home. And how we move forward collectively while addressing the racism that is being perpetuated?
0: He took cues from his icon, basketball star Allen Iverson, who he said wore his blackness like a suit of armor. And teenage Kaepernick wanted cornrows to match. He's getting what roles, his mom asked?
3: Oh, your hair's not professional. Oh, you look like a little thug.
4: Your mom become. said that to you.
3: Yeah. And those become spaces where it's like, okay, how do I navigate this situation now? But it also is informed why I have my hair long
1: today. How do I navigate this situation now? Well, what you do, Colin, is you wait 20 years and then go on national television and attack your mom. Apparently, that's how you navigate it all the problematic racism that can happen in your own home. I'm not saying that problematic things can't be said or done within families and that people are blameless and that you should always just keep your mouth shut about everything. Like, I, I'm not saying that. I am saying just the, the ingrate vibes off of this guy are so strong. Does he hate his parents? I don't think he does. Who knows? I don't think he does. I think this is something like, you know, you got to dig deep and go out and paint them in a bad light. So you can have another victimhood story to sell and make money. That's what he's doing. I just think it's so gross and unseemly. He could have made it more vague. He could have said, like, oh, I, you know, I had a friend or I had a relative who said this. But, like, he wanted to make it Raw and real and talk about how awful his own parents were to him. Look at this racism happening to me in my own house. And let's talk about that in front of the nation. But it's also par for the course. Like This is how he operates. This is what he does. He lives in a country that's given him everything. Including riches and fame and the ability, by the way, to get richer and more famous By running around criticizing the country because he has the freedom to do that. And unfortunately, there is a very successful, thriving cottage industry when it comes to criticizing America within America to Americans. There's a lot of people who will spend a lot of money for that. What a country. And rather than being grateful to this country that has given him everything, and rather than being grateful to his parents who gave him everything, his life could have gone a very different direction without their nurturing and support and their love, he decides to do both to America and to his parents the same thing. Criticize, attack, exploit. Now, part of the reason that I'm raising this is not just to go down the laundry list, although we could, right? The socks that he wore very publicly, portraying police officers as pigs. You think about the number of cops who have been targeted and shot and killed, Over the last couple of years, if I were less intellectually honest and less charitable, I could say he has blood on his hands by creating an environment and fostering a culture of hate against the police. That's the game that people like Colin Kaepernick play all the time when it comes to conservatives. And rhetoric and other things, right? The climate of hate hand-wringing only goes in one direction, it seems, when it comes to our moral betters in the media and elsewhere, We could talk about not just the kneeling. I have nuanced thoughts on the kneeling. I don't support it. I think you stand up, put your hand on your heart, or your salute, and you thank God above that you live in this country. But I also wasn't, you know, screaming for these people to get fired, although, interestingly, you had, you know, the uh, kneeling celebration committee at the NBA, a different sport. I mean, they made a whole big show of their commitment to anthem kneeling because they had to be pristinely woke in the nba but then the nba was throwing american citizens out of american arenas for protesting against chinese genocide during the u.s national anthem that's the same nba right this is the type of thing that just drives me crazy but it wasn't just the kneeling it was the the socks the pig socks. He called, Kaepernick did, because I guess he wasn't getting enough attention. So it's like, okay, again, this it's the Meghan Markle effect. Like, we're not getting enough attention. What do we do now? Oh, I know. It's July 4th. Let's call it a white supremacist holiday in support of a racist white supremacist country. Right when Kaepernick was making millions and was the star quarterback and all of that, he was out there on social media wishing people happy Independence Day. Yay, America. And then he's got a new business model, and he's like, look at this festival of white supremacy. That's something else that he did. The reason that I bring this up is not like I could care less about this guy. Part of me is like, why even talk about him for 15 minutes on the show? The thing with his parents just – it got me. It viscerally bothered me. But the bigger picture is I want to remind you – The big, wealthy corporate interests who went rushing to enrich this man. Right. He lost out on a quarterback job. He was underperforming. He tells you it's because of racism and his speech and he was discriminated against or whatever. And so you have these big corporations who leftists typically hate. But they want to score their DEI points and pay their indulgences to corporate America. So they said, I know. Here's a way to shield ourselves from the woke left-wing critics. Let's just shovel money at this guy. And if he calls cops pigs and calls America racist, all the better. Here's a bucket of cash from Nike. Believe in something, even if it means losing everything. That's, you know, something that they said, Nike. Was that the company whose CEO said that was a company like for, by, and of China? Or was that Disney? It's hard to keep those two straight sometimes. Disney also threw a bunch of cash at Colin Kaepernick and gave him a big production deal. I think he's making a Netflix movie, if I saw that. Spike Lee about the story of, oh, uh, imagine this, the exciting, thrilling, heroic tale of Colin Kaepernick. Is there someone else in his life? That he would like to trash publicly for his own enrichment. Apparently there's no guardrails on that with him. Nike, that believes in nothing, right? Believe in something? They don't. They believe in Nike and money, although they're getting a little bit upset in Portland headquarters because of all the crime in Portland. And they're begging the city to get a handle on it and hire more police so they can actually, like, run their stores without looting and shoplifting and all of that. And Nike's just sort of living in the bed that they have helped to make in Portland. This is exactly the type of world that they've envisioned. Maybe not on purpose, but this is what they're creating. So enjoy that, Nike. I hope they consider their investment in Colin Kaepernick as a big spokesperson for their company. Remember, he was vetoing product lines. There were American shoes, like American flag, Betsy Ross sneakers that he vetoed as the effective CEO, Colin Kaepernick of Nike. No, that's too pro-America. Get rid of those. It's racist. So they said, yes, sir. When the Chinese Communist Party was angry that someone at the Houston Rockets had supported democracy in Hong Kong, what did Nike do? They said, oh, we're so sorry, China. We're going to take all the Houston gear out of our stores In China, please don't hate us. What a profile and courage from that company. Disney and Nike, some of the worst in this country. And, of course, they had the same instinct. They saw Kaepernick attacking the police, attacking America. And they said, get that man millions on our dime ASAP. Talk about corporate values. We see that from Nike. We see that from Disney. And I wonder what some of the other people propping this guy up and making him even more rich and even more famous, what they'll make of him going after his own parents this way. It's probably a feature, not a bug. Oh, he's going after a family, too. Good. Can we can we renew the contract we pour some more cash into his bank account? Maybe we can have him set up with a little, you know, therapist so he can mine some more microaggressions from his childhood so he can bestow those upon the rest of the country in his next book or whatever he's doing, movie deal or what have you. What a life. Only in America. That's the lack of gratitude. Ugh. May I never, ever go down this kind of path? Would you want your kid to turn out this way? The cornrows and the hairstyle, the least of his problems. But unfortunately, the problems, I think most people would look at this and say, that's not good. The problems are rewarded. The incentive structure is largely broken. And say what you will about Colin Kaepernick. He understands that, and he's exploiting it. And he's got enablers. wonder how his parents feel today. Got a break. We'll take the break. We'll come right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Fresh
2: conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to FoxNewsPodcasts.com.
1: I'm Guy Benson. We are back. U.S. employers added a stronger than expected 300,000 Excuse me, 311,000 jobs in February, beating expectations. But a large U.S. bank has shut down, sparking some very unfortunate flashbacks to 2008, which might explain why the Dow is way off today, down 300-plus points at this hour with about half an hour left to go. Jobs number pretty good, down from last month but still better than expected. Still concerns about an overheated economy. All the worries about inflation still there. What's the Fed going to do? They have to keep sort of going with this chemotherapy on the economy because of inflation. And then that meltdown word. And people, I mean, if you were working in 08, that was a pretty scary time. And so whenever there's like even an indicator like, uh uh-oh, might that happen again? People understandably get worried. And that Probably explains the significant market sell off today, even amid the uh, pretty good job growth. So we'll keep an eye on that. Meanwhile, when we come back, as promised at the top of the show, I want to shift gears to presidential politics. Ron DeSantis, Florida governor, in Iowa today, we believe his first trip ever there, certainly as a candidate for something. Huge crowd. He's saying a few things that are raising eyebrows. Story in the Washington Post says that he's running for president. Is the DeSantis campaign kind of just in waiting at this point? Some analysis as soon as we come back.
2: talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson.
1: It's the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast always free. So here's the Washington Post reporting this morning that Ron DeSantis has indicated privately that he will be running for president in 2024 as his allies prepare for that. Here's the story from the Post. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has indicated privately that he intends to run for president, according to two people familiar with his comments. A political committee that seeks to draft DeSantis into the race launched Thursday. Ken Cuccinelli, former Trump official, actually, and former Virginia official, heavily involved in that. And is likely, according to this report, to serve as an approved outside spending vehicle for his campaign. Three people familiar with the planning set. DeSantis will visit the early nominating states of Iowa on Friday, he's there now, and Nevada on Saturday as he tours the country promoting his memoir. And by the way, speaking of the memoir, which I read, I got a copy of it last weekend when I was down in Florida. I was at an event where he spoke and many other people spoke. So I was given a copy of the book. I read the whole thing, actually last weekend and on a couple of flights, and it's not packed with juicy gossip that's going to grab a bunch of headlines and pitting Republicans against each other. As a matter of fact, he mentions President Trump a number of times in the book, and basically every reference is positive. This is not a drama-stirring book. This is a here's my story, here's my upbringing, here's how I met my wife, here's my Time at Yale as a kid who fell out of place at Yale. Here's how I served overseas in Iraq. And then his political campaigns for Congress and beyond his time as governor, COVID, fighting the media. It's interesting stuff. Not exactly groundbreaking and, again, not terribly like, oh, wow, he's spilling tea. That's that's not what this is about. And I don't think that was his intent either. But the book itself is doing quite well. The Courage to Be Free, I think, is what it's called. And in its first week on sale, Desantis's book has sold more copies than Trump or Obama or Hillary Clinton in that first week. I think I saw the number was close to 100,000. So if you're, if you're beating... Especially Obama and just the way that guy could print book sales and the media would promote relentlessly everything the guy did because they had a giant big boy crush on Barack Obama all along. They do not have that. They, they have the opposite of that for Ron DeSantis. But he's out there on the book tour, a very successful book tour evidently so far. And he just so happens, as we pointed out, to be heading to Iowa and Nevada. And I saw potentially New Hampshire's on the list. I think they were talking about maybe South Carolina. I've joked about how subtle it is. Back to the Washington Post story. The public and private moments underline how far along DeSantis and his allies are in their preparation for the 2024 campaign, even as the Florida governor has not said publicly that he will enter the race. Allies don't expect him to announce a run until after the Florida state legislative session ends in May. We've been telling you that now for months. But in recent conversations, this is sort of the key little scoop here. In recent conversations, DeSantis has described his presidential plans without any caveats that would suggest he's still deciding, according to people familiar with his comments, who, like others interviewed for this story, spoke on the condition of anonymity to share private remarks. which is sort of interesting. I've mentioned before the dinner that I had with him last year and a small group of right-leaning young media figures. And after dinner, we were having cigars and cocktails out sort of on the patio at the governor's mansion. And he was not telling any of us that he was going to run for president at the time. It was all off the record, so I'm not going to repeat what he said, but just broadly characterizing it was clear that this is someone who was thinking very hard about running for president and what that would look like, what that would entail, and what some of the lines of arguments might be against some other people in the race. One person in particular. Who I'll get to in just a second. Now, that might have just been sort of musing and thinking out loud at the time. At least according to this, and just based on common sense, it looks like things have developed. Things are moving in a direction that this is not a drill. DeSantis 2024 looks like it's happening. One other note that they mention in this Washington Post story is that DeSantis still has more than $70 million left from his reelection campaign. So he's got that war chest I think he's got a a very high capacity to bring in big dollars, which can matter, right, in a big, long, grueling national race. Not necessarily just to help his campaign, but if you can start to close off the funding spigots for other people or at least slow those to a trickle, that's the type of way that you might be able to get into something closer to A direct shot, one-on-one race with the front runner, who remains Donald Trump. Right? You all know, if you listen to the show, you know that I'm not a Trump guy. I never have been. When he does good things and made good decisions as president, I cheered. When he didn't, depending on the day and on the issue, I would sort of pick my spots and my criticism of him. But I'm not like a big Trump guy. But I also like to think at least that I'm a big reality guy. And the reality is the Republican nomination for 2024 runs through Donald Trump. He's the favorite. I'm not sure he's the uh, prohibitive favorite, but he's the favorite. And if you think that he should be the Republican nominee for president in 2024, Trump again, having already lost to Joe Biden, if that's your take on it, then, you know, by all means, go for it. And I'll make other arguments. Maybe you're persuadable, but some people aren't. They are all in for Trump. There's a lot of other people who aren't so sure. They are open to persuasion. They are not convinced that Trump is the best candidate to put the party in a position to win in 2024. So then the question for those voters becomes, all right, if that's the case, who can beat Trump? And I think that list is probably quite short. And it's something that I think should focus the minds of a lot of voters in the coming weeks and months. We're still way, way off from, you know, official go time. And there are a bunch of polls that we've talked about showing Trump pulling farther ahead in certain states. And then nationally, DeSantis doing very well in other states. There's a new poll out of Florida where DeSantis is like doubling up Trump. In a presidential primary, that's a big one, a big hall of delegates pretty early on in the process. But, you know, surprise, surprise, here's Ron DeSantis, not officially running for president yet, it seems. Just selling his book, but he, draw, he drew what today in Davenport? Something like 1,500 people to a book event where he gave a speech, he was interviewed on stage. And it looks, and I could be wrong about this, but it looks to my eyes like he might have trimmed down a little bit. Read into that what you will. And then this Washington Post story saying that he's just, like, talking in private openly with confidants about not the if but the when of what they're going to do when he runs if this report can be believed. I think that's interesting. Now, he just said the other day he was talking about the lack of drama inside his administration— and this was from earlier today, cut 36. Listen to this because he, he talked about well maybe we'll play, he talked about the borders, talked about Fauci, he talked about wokeness, he talked about the, and and mentioned the, you know, free state of Florida and, you know, all the wins that they put on the board and he did that of course a couple of days ago in his state of the state address. We've heard a lot of that from him in public remarks and interviews for a long time, but reading his book as I did, there was A reference in the book to a lack of drama and a lack of internal fighting and backbiting and and all of that stuff, that's the way he's chosen to run his administration in Florida with very strict no-tolerance policies. Like, if you're undermining the mission, you're out. He he wrote about that in the book. If you are undermining the mission, if you're leaking out there to people uh, to to damage the mission or to damage the governor, uh, you know, if you're trying to manipulate things and maneuver for your own benefit or your career advancement. If that's happening and you get identified, you are done inside DeSantis' world. That's what he writes about in the book. Then he kind of talked about it today as well. He mentioned it the other day. So this is something that he is maybe test driving, DeSantis. He's putting this out there into the universe, in the book, in public remarks. Let's listen to cut 36 right here.
5: We also understood that I could be the best uh, decision maker as an executive in the world. But if I don't have people in the administration who believe in the vision and are going to put the people's business before their own, then none of this stuff ends up getting done. So we made very clear people working in the administration, you know, you're not going to be leaking, you're not going to be doing this. If you have any other agenda but doing the business of the people of Florida, pack your bags right now. And we did that. And the one thing I could say, if you talk to Floridians, uh, there's no drama in our administration. There's no palace intrigue. They basically just sit back and say, "Okay, what's the governor going to do next? And we roll out and we execute and we do do things and we get things done.
1: I mean. It's hard to argue with that based on the results. There's no drama There's no palace intrigue. We don't have other agendas. We just do what we say we're going to do, and we execute and get things done. Now, let me ask you this, dear listener. Does that not sound to you not just like a completely fair selling point that he's making on his own behalf about his leadership in Florida, but also perhaps— The drawing of a distinction with someone else. Someone very well known for constant drama all the time. And leaks and agendas and backbiting and recriminations and distractions and palace intrigue and firings and trashing people that worked for you. Does that sound familiar at all to you, dear listener? It does to me. Do you think Ron DeSantis, who's a very calculating, savvy person, is bringing up that point about drama by accident? I don't think so. I could be wrong. But I've been following politics long enough. I feel like this is the opposite of a mistake. This is not random freelancing. This is a talking point that is being unfurled before our eyes for good reason. I wonder if it might get a little bit more explicit in the future. Because right now he's just talking about himself. He has plausible deniability talking about the lack of drama. He's like, no, we're just bragging on our team and how together we are and how, you know, we're mission-oriented and we are behind the vision and we just don't let that other stuff get in our way. Oh, yeah, plausible, okay. Okay, Ron, fair enough. But I think the subtext um, in our current political environment is at least to me pretty obvious. And at some point, not yet, maybe around, I don't know, May or June, or he might hold on to this for a while longer. It might be if you want constant drama and backbiting and leaking and all that, you know, there's someone you can vote for who has proven – Uh, Very, uh, very much involved, very much open to all that. If you want a tight ship that gets things done, there's another option. Right. That's how it seems like the thing is being built up, at least in my mind. So 1500 people in Iowa just for the book event. It's not a presidential event. Oh, we're just going to Nevada. Uh huh. That's interesting. I and mean, this is, this sounds like this battle is coming. It could be a battle royale. There's a reason why Donald Trump trashes this guy every day. I saw there was another truth post defending the uh, ethanol boondoggle in Iowa, talking about how farmers need the ethanol thing. They, just a total pander to that. I will remind people. Donald Trump lost Iowa in 2016 to Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz was against the ethanol subsidies. Oh, you can't do that. Well, Cruz did it that time. But that's how he's attacking DeSantis today. He's also attacking him on Social Security and Medicare and all the big government spending. It's a Trump is in the establishment big government lane. That's what he's running as an establishment big government guy. And, you know. You sort of can tell exactly what's bothering Trump. He wears it on his sleeve. He doesn't have a poker face. He's just out there emoting all the time. And the multi-month meltdown over Ron DeSantis is instructive. He's not doing this every day about Pompeo or even Pence or Nikki Haley or anyone else. It's one guy over and over again. And that one guy seems to have a different plan in mind, and he is sticking to that plan And that plan just happened to bring him to Iowa today. Do with that what you will as we watch it very closely. On the Guy Benson Show, much more to come. Stay tuned.
2: Guy Benson will be right
1: back. As we continue on the Guy Benson Show, we've told you about this horrible story out of Mexico where the drug cartels – Kidnapped four American citizens and killed two of them, and it apparently was just a big mistake, mistaken identity. They thought they were drug smugglers. In fact, they were just American citizens so down there accompanying their friend for like a tummy tuck or something, a discount plastic surgery situation, and it went very wrong. The Mexican government doesn't have control over you know their sovereign territory in a lot of places. The cartels do. And the report was these guys had, like, blown past a checkpoint, and then they got apprehended, tortured, interrogated, and two of them were killed. Just awful. Now, the weird thing, because that's tragic and terrible, the weird thing is the cartel has claimed responsibility and apologized profusely to the United States and to the victims' families. They wrote a letter. They turned in... The culprits said, these are our guys who did it, and we are so sorry. We didn't mean to do it. It's interesting because this is bad for business for them, right? Like, as far as they're concerned, business is good. But when you start having American citizens murdered, then the U.S. government is not going to look, to positively upon that, and the U.S. government might start getting much more involved the way that Bill Barr was talking about with us here yesterday. I encourage you to go back and listen to that. So they are desperate to try to smooth things over. Please, U.S., we did not mean this. You know, don't go to war with us. It's, it's interesting. Strange development. A we're, we're sorry note from the cartels. Another hour coming up. Shannon Breen will be here when we come back. It's the Guy Benson Show on a Friday. Stay tuned.
2: Live from the most powerful city in the world. Unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative. Guy Benson Show.
1: A new hour on this Friday. Happy Friday on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcasts always free. Bonus Benson on the weekends. All that good stuff. Thank you for tuning in at Guy Benson Show. Twitter and Instagram. You can follow us there. Fox News alert as we get rolling here. The Dow falling 345 points down 1% today. Closing below 32,000 at and Eight. So not a great day on Wall Street. Despite some of the good jobs numbers, there are other fears out there that we talked about a bit last hour. Joining us here in studio is Shannon Bream, chief legal correspondent and anchor of Fox News Sunday. Check your local listings. She's got the podcast, Live in the Bream, best-selling author. Her latest book coming out later this month, March 28th, is The Love Stories of the Bible Speak, Biblical Lessons on Romance, Friendship, and Faith. Hello, Shannon.
0: It is so good to see you. By the skin of my teeth, I'm here.
1: Yeah, so just to <laughs> peel back the curtain for a moment, right? you arrived in the studio with about 27 seconds to spare.
0: I like to cut it close.
1: But not coming from down the hall, coming from the airport. Right. So that's the thing. We were we were sweating bullets here because they said, all right, she just landed. I was like, ooh, is she flying into <laughs> Reagan, I hope? Oh, yeah. And the Uber ended up oh, timing it's perfect. perfectly.
0: Yes. And for once in my life, I didn't pack a bag. Because, you know, it's hard for me to go anywhere without, like, three things.
1: You didn't pack a bag?
0: No, no, I didn't I didn't check a bag. Oh, you didn't check oh, I, a bag. Oh, I never <laughs> oh. check a bag. Well, you see, you're you're very gifted. I'm so bad. I'm, I'm also like, well, a I'm, dude. I know, but I'm like, I might need three different pairs of shoes, options. I mean, it was in New York doing TV, and um, it was a very unpleasant, turbulent flight, which I don't love. But I didn't have a bag to worry about, so I literally grabbed my bag overhead. As I'm on the jetway, I hit Uber. I'm running through the airport. I, uh, the doors open, and he pulls up.
1: It was perfect. So some smooth sailing, finally.
0: Once I got off the flight, After sure. Got off the <laughs> yeah, plane.
1: and were you in New York mm-hmm. for this interview that you've got coming up on Fox News Sunday? This exclusive? one of them, yeah. yes. Tell us about that.
0: Okay, so today I interviewed our buddy Benji Hall. His new book, we, if you get a chance to read it, is amazing. And I would say this, whether he was our colleague or not, it is a page turner, and it is so beautiful. And I cried. I like don't pick up the book without a box of tissues because you're going to need them. Um, but to see him in person and be able to hug him, I mean, it just The poor guy, we could not stop hugging him. We were so excited to see him. And I think you're just going to be so inspired that this guy who wants to live on and honor the memory of Sasha and Pierre that we lost on Mm -hmm. March 14th a year ago. And he wants his life, which he's always been about making the most of life. But he really is now filled with such purpose and such joy.
1: You know, it takes a lot for someone who's got a book coming out. To promote someone else's book.
0: I, I'm just saying, but he's he's like, like, you don't it. miss it. Do not, not miss it. this book. It's called Saved, and it is out on the 14th.
1: Yeah, he's on Hannity last night. We talked about it yesterday. We're going to have him on this show as well moving forward. What a story. Mm-hmm. I know you have Senator Kennedy on the show this mm-hmm. weekend as well from Louisiana. And then this is interesting the president of Finland. Mm-hmm who must be a fan, by the way, of the Finnish long drink, our sponsor. Oh, well, exactly. Is, yeah, that's how you plug a sponsor, by the that, way. It's <laughs> that like was our right
0: connection. In. I like it. It's very smooth.
1: Yeah, it's just like s- not
0: product placement. It's just smoothness. <laughs> it is.
1: But in all seriousness, I mean, the president of Finland is not some minor character mm-hmm. right now because of so many of the concerns surrounding... Russia, yeah, right, and questions around NATO. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure there was quite a lot of substance to dig into.
0: Yeah, and they're really fighting and optimistic about getting into NATO along with Sweden, but Turkey is really holding things up. They're kind of the fly in the ointment right now. Hungary is also kind of signal "No, nah, we're not yet quite ready to do this." And you know, it's got to be uh, unanimous for somebody to join NATO. So he's got a long history with Putin. He knows him well. They share a lengthy border, and so he's very well aware of the situation. He said something interesting. He says. We're not afraid, but we are well wide awake. So he knows he lives in a very dangerous neighborhood, but he seems very confident in the Finnish military and in their ability to join NATO. He's staying very
1: optimistic. And they punch above their weight militarily, Mm -hmm. for sure. And they'd have to be wide awake at this point, given Mm -hmm. what's happened in the region. You don't typically think of Scandinavia as a dangerous neighborhood, but because of who's lurking right nearby, it could be, for sure. And they want that. They want in on the Protection Alliance, mm-hmm. obviously. So that interview coming up, and I mean, it just sounds like an incredible show on Sunday. Again, check your local listings on your local Fox station, and then it replays later in the day on Fox News Channel as well. Shannon, there's just much to get to in far too little time. In the last hour, we were talking a bit about Ron DeSantis from your home state, Florida. That's right. Uh, a bit far afield now. He's elsewhere. Uh, he's not in
0: Florida right now. He's, he's turned up
1: in <laughs> Iowa, right huh, on this huh. book tour. Uh, big crowd, fifteen hundred people.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The book sales actually incredible. I mean, he yes. he's sold more books than he's Trump or Obama or it. Hillary Clinton up to this point in the first mm-hmm. week. That's that's crazy.
0: It is. It's a crazy number.
1: And he's he's drawing numbers. He's got people in the room. You know, the speech. We pulled some clips on it. You know, just for example. It's playing some of the hits on wokeism. Just listen to Cut 33 real quick.
5: Because woke ideology has infected so many institutions, uh, if you really want to protect the freedom of your folks, you've got to be willing to defend them against the left, imposing their pathologies on, on your people in any of these institutions. So we've got to fight if we see it in medicine or the universities or the corporations. You can't just say, let it go, because then we're going to be living under an oppressive wokeocracy and we can't that happen
1: can't let that happen then he you know was talking about bragging on florida obviously we also played the clip last hour and he's now been saying different variations of this for days pointing out that his administration in florida has been sort of drama free everyone's on board if you get dramatic and very you know and sort of veer off from the mission you're gone and a, I I think that's fair enough he's talking about his leadership style B it seems like there's maybe an implicit contrast there
0: hmm yeah it's interesting to watch these potential 2024 contenders who um, a lot of times say things without saying names it's almost like Voldemorts I'm sorry I'm a, I'm a Harry Potter person so you'll get that if you're a Harry Potter person like they don't want to say the name but there are some jabs that are very that seem very specific to somebody else who's already in the race right
1: uh, and at some point you know some of these folks are going to have to be more explicit oh, yeah. and if, not pull the punches. If you're
0: on stage with a person, sure.
1: For sure. Especially if that person's dinging you every single day, mm-hmm. as that person is wont to do. You know, right as you were sitting down, uh, you were asking me about my birthday, which is very kind. Yes, Thank you. I hope Thank it was you. a great one. It was, you know, 38 is not exactly a big exciting one. I can't
0: even remember 38.
1: Yes, you can. Yes, you can. <laughs> and it was too far well, away. The reason that you can't Age remember thirty eight, be- you haven't yet hit thirty eight. Right? Crazy. How can you remember I, I would something? I need a time machine that, at that this point. It hasn't happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's the requisite flattery <laughs> uh, for this interview here, Shannon. But <laughs> that's but over now. I said that I was uh, speaking at my alma mater, back at Northwestern. It went really well. So cool. Uh, they were they were polite. They asked good questions and that sort of thing. And you just said, sort of jokingly, so unlike Stanford Law. Yeah. Tell us about what just happened at Stanford Law. So
0: there was a judge there, a federal judge there, who apparently wasn't even able to conduct the the talk that they were going to do. It was going to be about the Fifth Circuit and the Supreme Court and all kinds of things. And apparently there had been some kind of communication from a school official, somebody aff- affiliated with the school about... Um, just how disastrous this person had been. People showed up saying, you don't want health care for women. You're um, a bigot. You're anti-LGBTQ because of your rulings. All kinds of things. And they refused to let him be heard. So there, it, he didn't speak. I mean, I, I, he attempted to, from what I understand, but it, did not, it wasn't possible.
1: And what I had read, because there's several threads about this and some videos on social media about it. This is a federal judge. Right. Like a, a very... High ranking. You got to
0: get through Senate confirmation. Yeah, influential for that. Mm-hmm. federal
1: judge, and you can disagree right. with the judge and his rulings, and and get up there and ask tough questions exactly. or what have you. But no, they were trying to drown him out, and the, all these you know histrionics that we see. And apparently, like the dean of DEI, Diversity, right. Equity, and Inclusion mm-hmm. at Stanford Law, mm-hmm. was there and was denouncing to his face mm-hmm. this guest of the law school, a federal judge. I mean. <laughs> right. What an embarrassing, gross, bad look for Stanford Law. Like, at this point, I guess it's not that surprising. This mm-hmm. kind of thing happens now regularly. But it actually makes me very worried about the future yeah. of the law when our most elite law schools, Yale right up there,
6: mm-hmm.
1: Stanford. This is Georgetown. Oh, my gosh. Georgetown's right. a lunatic asylum these days the future elite lawyers are being churned out of these places where this climate is commonplace.
0: Mm -hmm. And you wonder, I mean, you have to be able to hear different arguments about the law. If you're going to go to the bench or you're going to practice law and you have to navigate these very weighty, difficult issues, you need to hear opposing viewpoints. It was one of the hardest things to me in school, like when you're on moot court and that kind of thing. You have to know your case inside and out, go to the wall for it, and then on a dime, turn around and argue the other side. To me, it was one of the best, most helpful things in law school to be forced to do do that, to acknowledge there were legitimate points on the other side and you were going to have to figure them out and argue them. And to me, if you can't even hear an opposing viewpoint and, you know, I Dr. Robbie George out of Princeton is one of my favorite people and he um, is a great guy who says, you got to go into every discussion with the open mind that you could be wrong. All of us need to go to these discussions that way. So then you're persuadable. You can have a real conversation. If you go into it with a completely closed mind as if you're right about everything, there's nothing to be learned from the other person. How does society continue? Yeah,
1: I made several of those points exactly at Northwestern on Tuesday, and at least no one got up and tried to scream in my face, and they listened, and some of them even possibly agreed. Good on them, Mm -hmm. bad on Stanford Law, bad on Georgetown Law, bad on some of these other places. And, I mean, it's worrisome. I saw Senator Mike Lee was tweeting. He's like, Mm -hmm. if you were a client or a law firm, why would you want one of these brats who can't even (laughs) listen Mm -hmm. to an opposing viewpoint— why would you hire this person and put them in a position where you need to trust them to comport themselves mm-hmm. with dignity and thoughtfulness in a courtroom setting, for well, example? And
0: what if that person becomes a young associate at your firm and then decides they don't want to argue cases that you've taken? They don't want to represent certain clients. They don't – you know, that's the thing that's you potentially run into. And then what? People can't have representation. And it's already happening with yeah. law firms
1: saying like, oh, I'm sorry, you're arguing a guns case? You're out. Exactly. Pro-life? You're out.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: not good. It's not a good development for our society. It's a microcosm in the law, something that you follow very closely. Mm-hmm. Shannon Bream, anchor of Fox News Sunday. Check your local listings. Big show ahead this weekend. We can't wait. So glad you made it. Me
0: too.
4: Just, See you Sunday.
1: Just barely.
0: I know, but it, under the under the wire. We'll it get. Counts. Listen, we need to continue your birthday celebration now.
1: I'm down. Let's get some long drink. Boom. Oh. It's the guy Benson. Show. Finland. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. We're in D.C. Right across the borderline is Maryland, where some Maryland Democrats have introduced an interesting bill. They are seeking to prohibit anyone under the age of 25 from being charged with felony murder because, quote, their brains aren't fully developed yet. So if you commit murder... In the process of committing another felony, that extremely serious charge would not apply to you if you're like a 24-year-old adult or a 19-year-old adult. You've murdered someone. This is what the Democrats are up to in Maryland. For equity, of course, and justice because, hey, their brains aren't fully formed, so not responsible, can't be held responsible. They're not ready for that sort of consequence for their actions. First of all, this is crazy. I think everyone understands this is crazy. The incentives would be horrific. Gang leaders, crime leaders would outsource the murdering to younger members of the organizations. Like, oh yeah, 22, have him go murder our rivals because even if he gets caught, they can't really throw the book at him because he's still under this formulation a child. I don't think this is probably going to pass, but this is what they're trying to do. It's like some of these legislators in Maryland looked over to the DC City Council. They're like, okay, we see your insanity and we raise you this. I will note that the newly elected Democratic governor of Maryland, who replaced Larry Hogan, the Republicans decided to nominate. A very Trumpy candidate in a very blue state. And the results predictably were a blowout win for the Democrats. Wes Moore is the new governor. And his pick to run the juvenile justice service, whose name is Vin Sheraldi, has said previously that no one under the age of 21 should be introduced into the justice system at all because their brains are not fully functional yet. Totally and completely nuts. And I would point this out. And these are rhetorical questions because we all understand the answers to them. But I'll just throw them out there anyway. Would any of these Democrats who say if you murder someone in the commission of another crime, you can't be charged with felony murder because you're just – you're too young. Your brain isn't ready for that, not fully developed. Would any of these same Democrats who are saying that's what they believe – as a matter of criminal justice reform, and fairness, would they support raising the voting age to 26? Absolutely not. Do they support a 12-year-old's quote-unquote right to get an abortion without her parents' knowledge? I would guess almost all of them would say yes to that. Do they believe that a 14-year-old can make decisions about irreversible Bodily changes and amputations and that sort of thing related to gender identity. I would imagine that almost all of them, being pristine wokesters, would fully endorse that. So they want teenagers to be able to vote. I bet you a bunch of them would support lowering the voting age, actually. Right? Abortion on demand, no parental notification notification. Gender transitions at very early ages, they're on board for all of it. But if you're 23 years old and commit murder, there are certain charges that should not apply because your brain just isn't ready for that yet. It's not fully formed. The contradictions are just glaring. They are incoherent, and yet I think incoherence is not really a deterrent to some of this stuff. It's all outcomes based. It has nothing to do with logic or good policy or what's in the best interest of young people or what's in the best interest of, in this case, public safety. So when you have lawmakers who are elected in places like Maryland, some of the bluest places in the country, if you don't have checks on their power, some pretty wild stuff can happen. You would think that the people in Maryland would be focused on maybe making Baltimore's school district not a national shame and disgrace where almost no students at all are up to par when it comes to grade level performance. Or you would think that their flagship city in Maryland, they would be focused on bringing down the horrific crime and murder rates in that place. Nope, they're like, let's find a way. To put, to put fewer people in prison for less amount of time for crimes involving murder. It's only fair. I mean, these, they're practically children. All I can do is close my eyes and shake my head. Let's hope there are enough people in that now one-party state who will slam the brakes on this. Again, I think they probably will, but who knows? Who knows? We'll step aside. We'll come back. The Guy Benson show resumes after this. Dr. Marty McCarry is here next in the studio. He is responding to Dr. Fauci and what Fauci said yesterday on Fox News Channel. You're going to want to hear this next.
2: You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
1: Just past halftime on this Friday edition of The Guy Benson Show. Happy Friday. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com, our website, podcasts, always free. And here with me in studio, face to face, it's Dr. Marty McCarry, Fox News contributor, surgeon, and professor of health policy at Johns Hopkins, author of The Price We Pay. Doctor, good to see you. Good to be with you, Guy. I want to walk us through together some of the audio from yesterday's interview on Fox News Channel between Neil Cavuto and Dr. Anthony Fauci. We'll start with this and cut 16. So Robert Redfield, former CDC director, has really been going kind of scorched earth on some people. I think he feels rightly wronged based on things that he was saying years ago and was getting shut out. He was accusing Fauci of being part of that cabal, shutting him out. Fauci's denying it cut 16.
7: I really feel badly about that because I I know Bob a long time. He is totally and unequivocally incorrect in what he's saying that I excluded him. I had nothing to do with who would be on that call. That call was organized by a group of evolutionary virologists in order to discuss the possibility that this might actually be a virus that was actually engineered. So I didn't put anybody on the list of that call, nor did I take anybody else.
1: Okay, so he's saying he had nothing to do with the decisions that were made on who was on that particular call about the origins of the virus, but Fauci says what he was all along was very open-minded about all the possibilities, cut 17.
7: I wasn't leaning totally strongly one way or the other, I've always kept an open mind. As the data evolved. evolutionary virologists began to look at the data, it looked much more likely that that it was a natural occurrence from an animal reservoir. I have always kept a completely open mind that it could be one or the other.
1: Is that true? I mean, I remember him going out of his way to knock down the lab leak theory over and over and over again, diminish it, dismiss it, He got little notes from Peter Daszak and others invested literally in it not being the lab leak theory, thanking him for his work against the lab leak theory. But he said, oh, no, I was never leaning strongly,
6: always open minded. That strikes me as some revisionism. I agree. I don't think it was truthful what he's saying uh, now to Neil Cavuto. Clearly on January 27th of 2020, just before the pandemic hit the U.S., he was frantic the day he was told that the NIH may have been funding that lab in Wuhan, sending emails out telling people, keep your phone on, you know, we need to talk, you'll have assignments. He um, reached out to the the guy who oversees the gain-of-function committee at 3 a.m. in an email that night. I mean, he was clearly frantic. And so when they put that committee together that excluded Redfield, you know, days later, even hours later, um, people on that committee told him three top virologists, Farzad, it was uh, uh, Christian Anderson, and Robert Geary, three top, maybe the three best virologists in the U.S., all told him directly they thought it was from the lab, or one of them even said, I don't see how it's not from the lab. And one of them is saying it's so easy to splice the gene like this, and then two of them Um, Gary and Anderson write that puff piece four days later in Nature saying it's not from the lab. They changed their tune publicly. And by the way, both got $9 million in NIH funding subsequent. It doesn't add up. And when they submitted that article, that puff piece, the weaponization of medical journals, if you will, they wrote in the cover letter – and this just came out this week in the New York Post – that the article was commissioned by or prompted by – was the language – Fauci and Collins,
1: and Fauci then, what weeks later, held up that study as some sort of oh, this uh, here's an exemplar of good science, and I don't really know uh, the authors, but this is what they're saying. Like he knew nothing about it, had nothing to do with it, which was not the case. It this just seems very sketchy, all of it.
6: Well, like a lot of things, the cover up is more obvious than the actual story, and if you look at this intense effort. To try to downplay it and censor and and you know get these puff pieces commissioned and the turnaround of these experts after they told him that is what doesn't add up right now and by the way, Fauci the only reason we have a controversy about whether or not COVID came from the Wuhan lab is that it's embarrassing we were funding that lab if we had not been funding that lab and if Fauci had not become a political figure you know hedging a side on the political aisle. This would not even be up for discussion. He was one of those advocates for gain-of-function research for a long time, writing articles. Promoting- and there was a gravy train,
1: a lot of money at stake here. I think that's what people are also saying: follow the money, follow the politics. It's all pointing in one direction. And he keeps saying, "Well, you know, the virologist said it was most likely natural from an animal reservoir." Where's the evidence
6: of that? Now, the virologist <laughs> told him the opposite. They just changed their tune after their meeting. And look, Fauci is a smart government employee. You don't put things on email. It's rule number one of working in the government. So a lot of phone calls were happening, and we know, you know, sending an email at three a.m. telling people keep your phone on. And I mean, we know he was frantic at that moment because this is the biggest liability case in the history of the world.
1: Mm. Now, Fauci said in the interview with Neil. That he's always kept an open mind. And yet, in the same interview, he said this. He was asked about China and a cover-up. And he's very, very reluctant to ever criticize China or the CCP. He really doesn't want to go uh, down that path. He's happy to criticize his critics and Donald Trump and Rand Paul and anyone else. But if it's a CCP, it's very nuanced. He's always very careful. But here's what he said when asked about that general subject matter in cut 19. This doesn't sound very open minded to me.
7: So if there's anything that the Chinese are covering up, they're covering up the fact that they violated their own rules about getting wild animals from the forest or whatever,
1: putting it into contact with humans. That was the real problem. That was the real problem, he said. The Chinese not following potentially their own rules about wild animals and putting them in contact with humans, he is absolutely clinging for dear life to the natural origin theory. Still, I know he keeps saying, oh, I'm open-minded and I would like to – but you just played the clip. He said that was the real problem. He is sticking with the natural origins theory. I ask again, like, is there strong evidence for the natural origins theory as opposed to everything else? what we've learned from the energy department, the FBI, it it just seems like he really has made up his mind for one reason or another. And he
6: reiterated it right there. It's intellectually dishonest. You know, I just testified in front of that house oversight committee on COVID and on this Wuhan origin COVID origin question. I told them this is a no brainer. First of all, the docs initial docs who saw the first patients were arrested. The epicenter of the world is five miles from the hospital. Uh, five miles from the lab. The lab is the only place where they were manipulating this. They applied many times to say, hey, we want to manipulate the coronavirus. And one of the applications say specifically to insert furin cleavage sites into the gene. That's what allows it to infect mammalian cells or humans. So we know there was an effort to do it. We know we were funding them. There was a lab leak in 1977 of an influenza virus, in china that's well understood and documented
1: and they had a few breaches on security and that sort of thing at this same lab right
6: it had the security profile of a dental clinic according to this u.s inspection just before the covid pandemic so it failed the inspection there's no records from the lab all labs are required to keep a lab record you keep a lab book that's lab 101 for anyone who's worked on. and then
1: the chinese government Cover this all up and destroy the evidence because, as I say, like a broken record, if it were naturally occurring, they would want that evidence because it wouldn't be embarrassing to them and it wouldn't be a stain on their honor or whatever. It would be, oops, this happened beyond anyone's control. That's not what they did. They did not want the evidence out there, so they destroyed it. And yet here we are years later. I mean you just built maybe not a completely bulletproof but pretty damn close to a bulletproof case – between the two of us, of circumstantial and other evidence, pointing obviously, egregiously, to the Lab League. And Fauci's on national television yesterday saying that if the Chinese covered up anything, it was uh, the violations of rules about wild animals. Quote, that was the real problem. It just feels like he is reading from some very weird script on another planet.
6: Dr. Fauci fooled the public and said he's going to retire, step down was his actual words at the end of last year. He didn't. He continues to show up at the NIH at his office. We think he's still getting paid. Um, He still has a federal security detail, which you can only have as a government employee. It's not a secret service. It's federal um, agents. And so he is sitting there preparing every day for this, what will ultimately be sort of the, the ultimate hearing and Uh, trial, if you will, in front of the public about what happened. And I think he's figured out legally what argument he needs to go down, what path he needs to go down. And the path is to cling to this natural origin theory, even though it's laughable at this point.
1: That doesn't seem like science to me. That sounds like something very different, if that's what he's doing.
6: What he has engaged in clearly is medical research as political propaganda these two articles the nature medicine piece and the lancet piece the lancet piece was written by peter Dazak, the guy fauci funded his go-between between the nih and the wuhan lab that's the guy who wrote this lancet piece saying it's you know it's clearly not from the lab i mean this is what happens when you have a small group. that guy had
1: millions of reasons to say that
6: it's amazing i mean it There's the cronyism in the field enables people to say, hey, experts are saying this, and I'm going to point to those experts.
1: Meanwhile, I want to ask you about this. Did you by any chance, Dr. McCary, see the letter that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis wrote to President Biden about the tennis player, the unvaccinated tennis player, Novak Djokovic, who is not allowed to enter the U.S. because he's unvaccinated to compete, this young, healthy guy to compete in the Miami Open or whatever it is. And DeSantis is like, yo, it's it's March of 2023. Here's what we know and have known for a long time. This is ludicrous. Please grant this guy a waiver. Sounds like the Biden team is still saying no. They're like, no, the pandemic's over uh, on this exact date in May. And until then, no, you can't fly into the country. There's a loophole for a boat, but we're not going to allow that either for some reason. I'm just trying to understand what is the point at this stage Given the actual data and the outcomes that we have talked about, what is the point of telling Novak Djokovic that he cannot come to the United States to play tennis because he didn't get a COVID vaccine?
6: I have never seen a disdain and loathing of a group in America as we have seen for the so-called unvaccinated, many of whom have natural immunity, didn't need the vaccine. And that's what we are seeing play out right now. There was an open statement by COVID advisors to Biden that we need to make the life of the unvaccinated hell. We need to make their life difficult, test them twice a day at their own personal expense, is what one person said. And so this is part of a giant tug of war battle that's been you know looming for a while now this yeah, has nothing it to over
1: do. like i get it maybe in 2021 where they were really <laughs> breathing down everyone's necks to go do this thing and they felt like they could get herd immunity and they felt like it would be more efficacious in terms of blocking transmission and that sort of thing and then we've learned that wasn't the case but like we're not there anymore we're here now and they're still
6: doing this jokovic is very smart for choosing not to get vaccinated he already has antibodies and he is at the highest risk of myocarditis, young, healthy male athletes. They are the highest risk. He's smart for not taking this risk. And thank God he's actually one of the people who has the position of power where he can actually say, I've won this tournament 10 times. I'm not doing this to, make, to stand with the many Americans who made the same decision in the same situation.
1: Last question. I want to play you a soundbite from our vice president who is talking about kids and a mental health crisis. That exists, there is a mental health crisis among our kids for a lot of reasons, many of which have been tied into pandemic policy. But here's what she said in Cut 28.
2: One of the young leaders was talking to me about climate mental health. I said, tell me what's going on with your peers. Climate mental health. One example is, you know, whether when they're ready, could they start a family? Worried about what that would mean. And the stress of it.
1: So... There are some kids who are being told by adults that the planet is ending, everyone's going to die, it's a giant emergency, they should feel guilty about their existence, they shouldn't have kids, all of this stuff. I'm open to different vantage points on climate change and what to do about it, but it really does seem like to the extent that kids are feeling this sort of thing, it's directly because of political adult activists putting the fear of God into them – which seems to me to be like the last thing that kids need given the horror show that they've just lived through with covid i just i feel like this has to be one more thing being inflicted on children by adults that at least strikes me as very harmful
6: Cl- climate mental health is is not a thing i mean i don't know where this comes from it's a, it's very interesting that we don't talk about Kids being shut out of their livelihoods and schools being closed for a year and a half. And yet climate and mental health is something that she clearly is passionate about. Um, I'm, I'm curious if I'm going to start seeing this in medical charts that this patient has a history of climate mental health. But it to me, there's a huge irony here that we have you know treated kids very poorly for way too long because a teacher's union edited a CDC document before it was released – And now we're talking about climate mental health with that degree of passion from our vice president.
1: Yeah, Well, I think it comes from the same place, right? The people who made the terrible decisions about kids well-being during the pandemic, there's a very big overlap. If you did a Venn diagram, which the vice president loves to talk about, there's a very big overlap with the same people who are scaring the crap out of these kids on climate change and making them feel depressed and all of it. It's the same culprits here. And I would dare say she's one of them, as a matter of fact. But maybe something to keep an eye on at Johns Hopkins. Dr. Marty McCarry, Fox News contributor, surgeon, professor, always good to see you. Good to see you, Guy. Quick break. We'll be right back.
2: Guy Benson will be right back.
1: Welcome back. House Majority Leader Steve Scalise coming up in the next hour. Before we get to that, I do have a question. Siri, why do people hate the media?
4: People hate the media because of the media.
1: That's correct, Siri. Thank you. Here's a headline from the Los Angeles Times to drive home that point. White drivers are polluting the air breathed by L.A.'s people of color. That's the headline in the tweet from the Los Angeles Times. Now, what the study, here are the experts again, The experts in the study have concluded that Los Angeles residents who drive more tend to be exposed to less air pollution as opposed to Los Angeles residents who drive less being exposed to more pollution. Now, there might be reasons for that if that's all accurate. That could maybe break down along socioeconomic lines or the types of people who need to drive in their cars for work or what have you. But what the L.A. Times decided to do was take the research, which is not about race, is my understanding. It's about drivers and non-drivers in L.A., and put a filter involving race over that data to turn it into a racial story, pitting white people against non-white people, like the evil white people in their cars are poisoning the people of color in the city. They found, they manufactured a divisive racial angle, Because that's what they do. And that's why a lot of people hold a deep and abiding and earned contempt for the media. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show. Straight ahead. Stay tuned. It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show, our final broadcast hour of the week together. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is always free on demand, including Bonus Benson on the weekends. Other options there, Foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show, on Twitter and on Instagram. Catch me this weekend, Sunday evening, on Trey Gowdy's show, Fox News Channel. Sunday evening, looking forward to that. This hour sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. It's so good. I might try to grab one on my way to the airport before I leave this evening, just to decompress for the weekend. Delicious, refreshing, alcoholic. So 21 plus only. Always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com. For more information, where they're sold near you as they expand and to order online, thelongdrink.com. Joining me now is the House Majority Leader, Steve Scalise, Republican of Louisiana, from Louisiana One. His book is Back in the Game. And, Mr. Leader, it was great to see you on the Hill yesterday during Kudlow's show, and great to have you back here on the radio.
3: Yeah, Guy, it was great to see you all out there at the Capitol. And uh, obviously we were talking about some exciting news with, with the introduction of the Lower Energy Costs Act and, and just, you know, some of the things we're doing in this new House majority. So, you know, good to welcome Cudlow but good to see you there as well.
1: Absolutely. And I want to talk about that energy bill in just a second. Before we get to that, I do want to get your reaction to the budget that President Biden rolled out yesterday. He gave that speech in Philadelphia. We covered it here. We talked about the budget. I take a very dim view. I know it has no chance of passage in the House But still, this is what the Democrats are announcing to the world. This is what the White House wants to do moving forward. This is their view of the world. A lot of it is, I think, poll-tested, fairness, class warfare, that kind of thing, more of the same from them. What's your overall reaction? What are some of the elements of the president's budget that you're really paying attention to? I
3: think what most Americans are tired of is more big government socialism and some of this radical spending in Washington that's driving inflation. And people recognize when you spend trillions of dollars in Washington, as Joe Biden has, it only not only adds up massive debt, but it drives inflation through the roof. And President Biden's budget doubles down on those failed policies, more taxes, more spending and more inflation on hardworking families. That's not the direction we need to be going in. Uh, That's why it's not going to pass the House.
1: I mean there's no doubt about that, and one point that Larry Kudlow made on my radio show yesterday because we were on each other's shows yesterday is the president's budget I think is so offensive to the entire center-right coalition that you know you know as well as anyone else, Mr. Scalise, that the Republican Party has a lot of different characters inside that tent, and they're not always on the same page when it comes to various issues and tactics and what have you. What the president put forward is so unacceptable. I feel like everyone from Susan Collins in the Senate all the way out to the most right-wing member that you might have in the House, every single person would be unified as a no on this, right?
3: Well, not only are are every are all Republicans in, in the House going to be unified against President Biden's budget, we're going to bring his budget to the floor and force a vote on it, and let's see how many Democrats – are willing to sign on to trillions in new taxes and spending Good. and more runaway inflation. So let Democrats go on record and decide whether or not even they support President Biden's radical extremist agenda.
1: Yep. And we're talking about almost seven trillion dollars in spending in one year. That's the budget that he's put forward. And I ran through some of the numbers yesterday. It wasn't that long ago that we were spending less than three trillion dollars collectively in the federal government annually annually. Uh, that was, you know, when I was coming out of college around then, even right before COVID 2019, the government spent, in my mind, too much, but $4.4 4 This is close to $7 trillion. So, I mean, the numbers are unsustainable, and the president's doubling down on a lot of this stuff, and I'm very eager to see how that goes for House Democrats and how their leadership whips that vote. Do they want to all vote present, maybe not show up for the vote, vote for some of this crazy stuff? That'll be interesting. We'll be watching. Meanwhile, Congressman, you talked about what House Republicans are proactively pursuing. H.R. 1 is an energy bill. Tell us what's in this bill specifically and what you're hearing from the other side of the aisle. Is there any chance of bipartisanship on this?
3: There ought to be because, look, one thing we've been talking about for a long time is that uh, we need to produce more energy in America to lower costs for families – and also to stop being reliant on foreign countries for our energy. Look, you had Biden early off in his presidency not only killing things like the Keystone Pipeline, shutting down production, not issuing leases, but he was also begging Putin to produce more oil. He was greenlighting Putin's pipeline to Germany. He's begging Saudi Arabia to produce more oil. You don't mm-hmm. have to get on Air Force One and Venezuela. To Saudi Arabia to beg them for energy when we can make it all here and create good jobs and lower costs for families at the pump and in their household electricity bills. So that's what the Lowering uh, Energy Costs Act is about. It's, it's talking about streamlining the permitting process, building more infrastructure like pipelines so we can move energy throughout the country at a lower cost, uh, getting some sanity in some of these regulatory agencies who only want to go after American energy but want to make us more reliant on foreign energy that, by the way, emits more carbon if you're worried about carbon emissions. So... All of this will not only make America more energy secure at a lower cost for families, and it will also create really good jobs here at home.
1: And yet you know that the green activists are going to be all in against this, even though you just made some of the points about why they shouldn't be. It's not really about the planet or emissions a lot of the time with these people. It's about power. It's about dismantling capitalism, as they will sometimes openly admit, And so they're going to be hardcore no's on this. The Democrats seem broadly beholden to them. So does that maybe put a chill on any expectations of winning Democratic support for a lot of this stuff that just, to me, seems like common sense?
3: It's all common sense policy. And, Guy, you know what? If Democrats want to stand in the way of lower energy costs for families and lower carbon emissions globally, then we're going to make them pick that side. You've got to choose – between hardworking families who are struggling or these radical extremists, Green New Deal uh, folks. A lot of them, by the way, are are driven by foreign countries. China would love for Biden's energy policy to continue going forward because it makes us more reliant on Chinese products. One of the things we're doing is open up more rare earth minerals to be mined here in America, so we don't need to be dependent on China for that. Uh, So, you know, foreign dictators will hate this bill. And where's Biden going to go? Where are Democrats going to go? If they're going to side with all the leftists and the wokest, and by the way, the foreign dictators, that's something that they're going to face at the polls next year. So, you know, at some point, there's accountability that goes along with this. And, you know, we're going to push for good, smart policy that lowers energy costs. And I hope every Democrat votes for it. They really should if they cared about low income people, because they're hit the hardest, by the way, when energy costs go through the roof like they are. Yep. Uh, So let's stand up for those hardworking families.
1: Yep, it's a regressive issue, and that almost never gets mentioned. Since you mentioned the word accountability, I do want to ask you about this. One of the big reasons that I was relieved that House Republicans won the majority, even though it wasn't the election that I know you guys were hoping for in terms of uh, the scope of the victory, still a win is a win – And job number one, from my perspective, is to stop things like, for example, the Biden budget that we just talked about. Uh, It's DOA not going anywhere. Another element is to put forward positive agenda items to try to make people's lives better and to put Democrats on the record on these issues. For example, the energy bill you were just talking about. The third component of the majority is accountability and oversight, at least as far as I'm concerned. And on that score this week You guys were very busy on Capitol Hill, on COVID origins, on Afghanistan, on big tech censorship. The House Republican majority is at work on this stuff. And it's just been striking the degree to which a lot of the Democrats in some of these hearings have just been trying to disqualify witnesses and saying that, you know, they're racists or they're not really journalists or what have you. They've put on quite a show, Mr. Leader. And I wonder, as you look at some of the accountability minded hearings that have been happening just over the last couple of days. What are some of your takeaways?
3: Well, number one, you see, Democrats are scared to death of the truth getting out. They don't want oversight. They don't want accountability. You know, I always say the best disinfectant is sunshine. You know, you turn on the light and you see the cockroaches running. And I think right now you're seeing Democrats on the run because people are starting to see what they've been doing. I mean, look at the origins of COVID, as you talked about. Uh, You know, we finally started, we've been asking to research and investigate the origins of COVID, and the White House stonewalled us, and I think we're finding out why now. Turns out it looks like there were some documents where some of the top scientists under Fauci knew that it likely started in the lab in Wuhan. It wasn't the bat biting your cat, and you know, the cat bit some guy at the, the wet market that we were all told. It was probably that it was a genetically manipulated disease in the lab in Wuhan, possibly with taxpayer funding from America going to help fund it. And shouldn't we know about that? And so we just passed a bill off the House floor today that we pushed unanimously to declassify all of the information on the origins of COVID. This is something the administration didn't want to get out. Once we put it on the floor, people knew how do you vote against that? You know, and this is the kind of stuff. And they didn't, right? It was, you Pelosi, said it was unanimous, right? Not a single Democrat voted against it because wow. Nancy Pelosi wouldn't allow this vote. We tried bringing these bills to the floor for the last two years and Pelosi blocked it. And so finally, we're in the majority. We put a bill like that on the floor, and they can't vote against it because then they're siding with China and trying to cover it up. But for two years, they did cover it up, and now the truth is going to get out. And so they're scared to death of the facts. You know, Every time they call people racist and all this, you saw it in the committee hearings. They're going after witnesses who were Democrat witnesses. They were fine. You had a guy that worked for Bill Clinton. Nobody had a problem with him until he came as a Republican witness to tell the truth. You know, they don't want the truth, but the American people deserve the truth. They're demanding it. and They're finally going to get it because we have a House Republican majority fighting to expose it.
1: You invoke the name of Nancy Pelosi, the former Speaker of the House. She's still there, technically a backbencher now, but still partially in sort of an eminence Greece type role. And I'm just wondering, from your perspective, you were accustomed to working with Pelosi, Hoyer, and, you know, that whole Clyburn, right, that whole team. Now there's a new generation that the Democrats have selected as their leaders. Hakeem Jeffries on down. What's your experience been with them so far? I know it's just been a couple of weeks in the new Congress, but what's the vibe you're getting from them?
3: Right. It's going well. And look, I mean, when you're in the majority, you get to control the agenda. So, you know, we we'll see what their, you know, what their real agenda is going to be as we get into some of the negotiations on on things that have to go through the House and Senate and are, you know, more bipartisan. But at the same time, we have good working relationship with them. And, uh, you know, and I think everybody's off to a good start. But there's really big things we have to tackle. The debt ceiling's coming up. We've got to get spending under control. You know, the country's maxed the credit card out with all of Biden's trillions in spending the last two years. And it's time to get control over that. And, And hopefully we get bipartisan agreement on how to tackle these big issues. We're, you know, we're going to present good plans and hopefully get Democrats to join with us.
1: Will House Republicans, and for that matter, Senate Republicans as well, land on one reasonable, unified ask on the debt ceiling? Are you confident that they'll be on the same page when those negotiations really ramp up?
3: We've been having a number of conversations, meetings within our conference over the last few weeks, and I've been part of a lot of those, and they're going really well. And there are some really good ideas on big, big waste. You know, look, there's there's waste all throughout government. President Biden doesn't want to acknowledge any of it, but I'm talking about waste that adds up to tens and hundreds of billions of dollars that we're looking into as part of a solution on the debt ceiling. And, and frankly, look, you know, when the president maxes out the nation's credit card, first of all, we're not going to just give him another credit card and go say go max that one out. That was what he asked for, and that's not going to happen. But as we pay the minimum payment on the card, we're surely going to make sure we make that payment. But we're also going to do the things that stop us from maxing out the credit card again. And so that's where the negotiations are right now. We're having a lot of really productive meetings. And the president has only met once with Speaker McCarthy. Speaker McCarthy's reached out and said, we need to continue these meetings, and the president has it. But at some point, that's going to have to happen again soon.
1: Republican Congressman of Louisiana, Steve Scalise, my guest. He is the House Majority Leader. And, Congressman, it is always great to have you here. We look forward to having you back very soon. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk in the near future.
3: Great being with you, Guy. Look forward to it again.
1: Likewise. That's Steve Scalise on The Guy Benson Show. Much more to get to. It's the happy hour. Stay tuned.
2: Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show.
1: Happy hour, Guy Benson's show. I'm a little extra happy today because last night, sort of a big birthday item on the week for me was hockey tickets. My New Jersey Devils were in town here in D.C. taking on the Washington Capitals. Devils having an outstanding season. The Capitals fighting for a playoff spot. Good crowd, good game. Devils really outplayed the Caps, outshot them almost 2-1, to one, but it was tied after regulation. So overtime, also no scoring, despite a Washington power play. And then it went to a shootout. And the Devils have not typically been great in shootouts. Let's put it that way. But there were a total of seven shootout attempts on each side, none of which resulted in a goal, until it became an opportunity for the Devils to win it by putting the puck in the net, Timo Meier, newly acquired from San Jose, buried it and won the game right in front of us. We had really good seats and the Devils won in the shootout. So they got the two points in Washington, which was exciting. Good number of Devils fans, actually, in the building, including right in my section, not including my husband. Adam, who is not a big sports fan, let's be clear. And he was from Colorado, so he would like maybe say he's an Avalanche fan. Now he's all of a sudden, he says, a Capitals fan. So he's rooting for the Capitals against my Devils. And I am a sports fan, and I actually care, unlike him. And I got the tickets, by the way, as a birthday present to myself. And I invited him along because that's a thing to do. I did not realize I was going to have a hostile fan next to me. Rooting for the other team with all the other people, with the exception of the Devils fans, right around us. I was getting lightly heckled from time to time. Nothing too bad. So, you know, the Devils won. And I high-fived a few strangers, but not Adam. He doesn't get a high-five. His team lost. His team. It's not even that. I almost wanted to Venmo him for the ticket. Like, oh, did you enjoy your time? Even though your team lost? Your fake team? That'll be $90. You can just Venmo me. But I figured that'd be bad for business. You know, cut him some slack. He did buy the beers, so that was nice. And ultimately, the Devils won. It was Timo time. And finally, on the, what, the eighth penalty shot of the night in the shootout, he scored, we won, let's go Devils. And I did secure a few more tickets for next time I'm up in New York for a home game. I think Devils, Minnesota, a couple weeks from now. I'll take my brother to that one, an actual Devils fan. (laughs) With that, we'll take a break. We'll come right back. It is the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show.
2: Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson.
1: It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show on this Friday, Earlier in the program, we caught up with Shannon Bream, our friend, our colleague, anchor of Fox News Sunday. So much to talk about always with Shannon. Here's part of today's conversation. In the last hour, we were talking a bit about Ron DeSantis from your home state. That's right. Uh, A bit far afield now. He's elsewhere. Uh, He's not in
0: Florida right now. He's turned up (laughs)
1: in Iowa right on this book tour. Uh, Big crowd, 1,500 people.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: The book sales actually... Incredible. I mean, he yes. he's sold more books than he's Trump or Obama it. or Hillary Clinton up to this point in the first mm-hmm. week. That's that's crazy. It
0: is. It's a crazy number.
1: And he's he's drawing numbers. He's got people in the room. You know, the speech. We pulled some clips on it. You know, just for example, playing some of the hits on wokeism. Just listen to cut thirty-three real quick.
5: Because woke ideology has infected so many institutions. Uh, if you really want to protect the freedom of your folks, you got to be willing to defend them against the left imposing their pathologies on on your people in any of these institutions. So we've got to fight if we see it in medicine or the universities or the corporations. You can't just say, let it go, because then we're going to be living under an oppressive wokeocracy. And we can't that happen.
1: Can't let that happen. Then he you know, was talking about bragging on Florida. Obviously, we also played the clip last hour, and he's now been saying different variations of this for days pointing out that his administration in Florida has been sort of drama-free. Everyone's on board. If you get dramatic and very, you know, and sort of veer off from the mission, you're gone. And, A, I I think that's fair enough. He's talking about his leadership style. B, it seems like there's maybe an implicit contrast there. Hmm. Yeah,
0: it's interesting to watch these potential 2024 contenders who— um, a lot of times say things without saying names. It's almost like Voldemort's. I'm sorry, I'm a, I'm a Harry Potter person, so you'll get that. If you're a Harry Potter person, like, they don't want to say the name. But there are some jabs that are very that seem very specific to somebody else who's already in the race.
1: Right. Uh, and at some point, you know, some of these folks are going to have to be more explicit. Oh, yeah. And it, not pull the punches. If you're
0: on stage with the person, sure.
1: For sure. Especially if that person's dinging you every single day, mm-hmm. as that person is wont to do. You know... Right as you were sitting down, uh, you were asking me about my birthday, which was very kind. Yes, Thank you. I hope Thank it was you. a great one. It was you – know, 38 is not exactly a big, exciting one. I can't
0: even remember 38.
1: Yes, you can. Yes, you can. <laughs> it was too far well, away. The reason that you can't Age remember thirty-eight, you haven't yet hit thirty-eight. That's right? Something. How can you remember something? I would something need a that, time machine that at that this point. It hasn't happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's the requisite flattery <laughs> uh, for this interview here, Shannon. But that's but over now. I said that I was uh, speaking at my alma mater, back at Northwestern. It Went really well. So cool. Uh, they were they were polite. They asked good questions and that sort of thing. And you just said, sort of jokingly, so unlike Stanford Law. Yeah. Tell us about what just happened at Stanford Law.
0: So there was a judge there, a federal judge there, who apparently wasn't even able to conduct the the talk that they were going to do. It was going to be about the Fifth Circuit and the Supreme Court and all kinds of things. And apparently there had been some kind of communication from a school official, somebody aff- affiliated with the school, about... Um, just how disastrous this person had been. People showed up saying, you don't want health care for women. You're um, a bigot. You're anti-LGBTQ because of your rulings. All kinds of things. And they refused to let him be heard. So there, it, he didn't speak. I mean, I, I, he attempted to, from what I understand, but it did not. it wasn't possible.
1: And what I had read, because there's several threads about this and some videos on social media about it. This is a federal judge. Right. Like a, a very... High-ranking, you got to
0: get through Senate confirmation.
1: Yeah, influential federal mm-hmm. judge, and you can disagree what? with the judge and his rulings, and and get up there and ask tough questions exactly. or what have you. But no, they were trying to drown him out, and all these you know histrionics that we see. And apparently, like the dean of DEI, Diversity, right. Equity, and Inclusion mm-hmm. at Stanford Law, mm-hmm. was there and was denouncing to his face mm-hmm. this guest of the law school, a federal judge. <laughs> My full interview with Shannon Bream, Fox News Sunday anchor, available online at GuyBensonShow.com. Part of the free podcast, every day on demand, start to finish, no charge at all to you, plus bonus Benson on the weekends. GuyBensonShow.com, Podcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, when we come back, it's the home stretch. Producer Christine is suspicious of an itinerary she's received from her husband. We will walk through it and see if she's being too conspiratorial as soon as we come back.
2: For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com.
1: Home stretch on this Friday on The Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast free every day on demand. Bonus Benson on the weekends. I'm scheduled to appear on Trey Gowdy's show on Sunday evening on Fox News Channel, so set your DVRs or tune in for that. I hop on a plane tonight, story of my life recently, heading to Arizona. I know I've got listeners out there, a few stations, so hello, Arizona, looking forward to that. It's been a lot of travel, a little exhausting. However, looking at the forecast, high of 81, sunny, that doesn't seem too awful. So looking forward to that. The one thing I'm nervous about is My Northwestern Wildcats play in the Big Ten tournament tonight. And my flight is scheduled to take off at halftime. So I am just hoping that the Wi-Fi works on the flight. Because usually it does, but not always. And I will be losing my mind not knowing what's happening. Playing Penn State again. Crushing loss of them. I was at that game a couple weeks ago. Actually, March the 1st. Flew out for it, senior night, great atmosphere, and lost at the buzzer. So the Cats get another shot at the Nittany Lions. Revenge would be nice. They've just got our number for years in basketball. We'll see. Games in Chicago, we'll have a lot of fans there. Should be fun. Go Cats. And then, of course, Sunday is Selection Sunday, something that we're teaching Christine about. She knows nothing about college basketball, NCAA tournament stuff. And the Cats are going to the tournament. The question is where? And she is most concerned about my schedule for next week. She keeps asking me, what's the plan? I'm like, I don't know until Sunday's announcements arrive. Because I could be going to Albany or Greensboro or Orlando or Birmingham or Columbus or Des Moines or Denver or Sacramento. Those are the options. And the game could be Thursday, anytime, or Friday, anytime. Could it be during the show? Yes. Maybe not. Who knows? We'll find out on Sunday. And we'll plan accordingly. An exciting time of year if you're a college sports fan, and Northwestern's only been involved in this twice, ever. Made the first ever tournament in 2017. And now, amazingly, we've been a lock for a couple of weeks. So, I am... Obviously, and needless to say, extremely excited about this. But first things first, beat Penn State tonight if possible. That's certain. But first things first, beat Penn State tonight if possible. That would be awfully nice. Now, Christine, meanwhile, is looking at her husband's travel schedule. And we mentioned this a few weeks ago. Bobby is off to a bachelor party this weekend with one of his buds who's getting married for the first time. Not that that necessarily matters. You might do a bachelor party your second time around. But I think, really, the goal is to be married once and do the big bachelor party thing once, and that's it. Christine had expressed a skepticism that it's appropriate for men over the age of 40 to have a bachelor party. I disagreed with that. She was also concerned about what happens at bachelor parties. And now she says that she has been provided with, like, a line-by-line run of show for the Bachelor Party, which actually you would think would impress her because she's a producer. She loves producing things. So having a rundown, if you will, of the Bachelor Party, that is impressive organization, I would say, on some level. And yet, Christine, rather than being appreciative of this document, you seem to be very skeptical of it.
4: Well, first— the document, if we're going by this, and I'm, I am skeptical if this is the real thing. That's what's happening this weekend, but the document doesn't make it sound like it's that much fun. Um, like they're going, what's it called? Like axe, hatchet throwing, axe throwing, like into a yeah, wall. You know, a, you throw it into a wall.
1: Yeah, that's a thing. That's been kind of a fad for a couple of years.
4: Is is that fun, Dan? Have you ever done that?
2: I've never done it, but a lot of people do it here in the city, and it seems people like it. I don't know.
1: Like lumberjack People do it. No, it's just like normal people go, and you throw the axe into the wall. It has not appealed to me, I'll be honest. I've seen basically all of my friends have posted a video of themselves at some point throwing an axe. I haven't done it. Christine hasn't done it. Dan hasn't done it. Wyatt is a voracious axe thrower. It's what he spends all his time doing. If he's not reading the Wall Street Journal, he's throwing axes at walls. That's his number one time-consuming activity. Frankly, he's gotten very good at it. He's sort of almost in, like, the major leagues, if you will, of axe throwing. But that's a separate point. We won't get into that because it's really just his private life, not our business. But, Christine, why are you skeptical of that? That seems like exactly something that a bunch of 40-year-old guys would do.
4: Well, well, first first they're meeting up to go go go-karting. Like, doesn't that sound— That sounds
2: fun. I would do that.
4: It's like a 90-minute thing. And like in the notes, it said, "Now, guys, we got to be careful. Like, let's not get you know too crazy and drinking because you know we have to be responsible. At drinking and driving, right? Because they're
1: driving low <laughs> car. Where is this? Where is this happening? By the way,
4: uh, I don't, I don't know if I should say, but it's like a casino area in Connecticut. Okay,
1: okay, so oh, that that really narrows it down, Christine. I wonder, <laughs> I wonder what it might be.
4: <laughs> but Dan just looked at me like, really?
1: <laughs> she just like it. What it else sounds it like it would rhyme with smohegan Fun? Or Smock's Puds. Yep, one one or the other.
4: <laughs> I didn't say where <laughs> Bobby's going to kill me.
1: Okay, so they're going go-karting. The thing that's strange to me about that is go-karting to me was very exciting as a kid when I couldn't drive real cars. And then kind of lost its luster once I could, you know, drive <laughs> for real. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Dan seems like he's into it.
2: I love it. Yeah, no, We I did that one time on a bachelor party, actually. Um, down in Florida, and it was really, really fun. Um, You do the drinking afterwards, not during, because obviously for what you laid out before, but yeah, it was really fun. Mm
4: -hmm. Okay, so then... And 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 Wyatt,
1: by the way, Wyatt is still a year away from qualifying for his learner's permit, so uh, (laughs) we'll, we'll get to him on that here maybe next year. Um, you know, his his parents drive him to and from the axe throwing practices. But uh, Christine, next point.
4: Okay, so they're doing they're going to go go karting. They're going to go axe throwing. I thought they would obviously go to like a really nice dinner, or one of those nice steak places. But no, I guess they're having like pub food at the axe throwing. And then this is where the itinerary ends for the night. It just says, and then after that we gamble, and then you know make our way back, you know to wherever they're staying, because the next morning they have an eleven a.m. golf, a tea time. So to me, I said, "This sounds super lame. I'm just going to put it out there."
1: But seems a little potentially chilly in the Northeast to be golfing, but hopefully the weather cooperates.
4: That's true, but they these guys all love golf, so like they'll okay. go whatever. But here's they'll make it work. Here's the thing that I'm thinking. Here's the okay. So there's like level-headed Christine, you know, just completely easygoing, like the cool wife, right?
1: Hello? Is this a fictional, fictional <laughs> character that we're talking about here or This what? is,
4: no, the me, the me, you know,
1: <laughs> uh-huh. the normal me. Yeah.
4: But then there's like crazy Christine in the back. Okay, of-
1: so s- who might sound a little bit like Cut 30? What is the matter?
4: I don't know. I just hope you're not going to go to some strip club when you're up there.
6: Melissa, we're going to Napa Valley. I don't even think they have strip clubs in wine country. Well, I'm sure if there is one, Phil will we'll
4: sniff it out.
6: It's not going to be like that. Besides, you know how I feel about that sort of thing.
4: I know. I know. It's just boys and their bachelor parties. It's gross.
0: I just wish your friends were as mature as you.
1: Hmm. (laughs) The hangover at Helm's character. And that was not the craziest portion of that exchange. But you get the gist. There is the defensive, neurotic, jealous, paranoid cookie. of primary no. cookie, who uh, is, what, concerned that this is all a ruse, that the list of anodyne to-do items and activities is all just misdirection?
4: Mm-hmm. Like, what if they—because, like, he was so eager to show me the rundown of, like, everything that, like, I all of a sudden started to think, you know, this smart mind of mine, I started thinking, wait a second— What if the guy said, okay, here's what – just show the wives, you
1: know? Right. Let's all show our wives that we're going to go go-karting and axe-throwing and golfing and we'll just have a real itinerary over here with the hookers and the blow.
4: Gee, Guy, I wasn't even thinking that. (laughs) Guy. Guy.
1: Hypothetically. That
4: was not even, like, what where I was going, but thank you. Now my Uh-oh, paranoia no, is just gotten to, like, a level 10. I didn't even think
1: about that. It's like the Potemkin rundown that you send our bosses every day because <laughs> you don't want them to know what we're actually talking about. I'm just kidding. That never happens because we don't want to get fired. But it's an interesting theory, actually, that they would come up with a sanitized version of what they're doing in order to – Create a false sense of security among the significant others, and then it's off to a wild, hangover-style bender.
4: And the only reason I'm saying this is every single one of the gentlemen in this bachelor party is married with kids. And as you know, leaving your wife with children on the weekend— Uh, is usually a no-no. Wives don't really appreciate that because they need the help. I'm lucky I have Megan. You know, she basically is babysitting me this weekend. Let's be honest. (laughs) I'm not kidding.
1: (laughs) You're like, Megan, where did you put my extra box of mama's juice?
4: Megan's calling the Ubers. (laughs) Um, But I could see where, like, you know, the guys are like, hey, look, this this is what we're doing. Don't even worry about it, honey. Like, I'll be back on Sunday in no time. So I, that's crazy, Christine, like, you know, the one side of my brain thinking that. Um, but then the other side is thinking they are 40 and over, and this is seriously what they're doing for fun.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, the question is, will Bobby lose a tooth? Will he meet Mike Tyson? Will there be a tiger?
2: Where they I call, guess we
1: won't really know.
2: Where they call each other's wives and don't actually talk to their own wife and just say, like, oh, we're fine. It's good. We're go-karting. Vroom, vroom. Like in the background, you know, pretending to make sounds that doing that.
6: Mm-hmm.
4: That does the mm-hmm. groom go missing? I mean, a lot can happen in that crazy state of Connecticut.
1: I tend to believe that this is actually what they're doing. My guess is, I mean, you know it. When you hit a certain age, you're just kind of tired, and you're going to do fun stuff with your friends, and you're going to have some drinks, and you're going to do some gambling, and I'm sure there'll be off-color humor, and you know, whatever. But. My guess is they're going to be throwing axes and driving go karts and making their tea time slightly hungover. That's my bet, but you never know, Christine. I wonder. You know, this is something you could probably take up with your many medium psychic type people that you throw money at and just burn your hard-earned cash on.
4: Oh, that's right? actually. Just have I them should tell you. I should tell Bobby. Like, be careful what you do because my appointment's next week, and I can I can find out anything.
1: Yeah, I think he will. Sleep very soundly because it's fake. I'm not.
4: No, because I told you I don't want you to put that out in the universe. So, like, don't don't no. say anything because next week it's is fake. when I have to start cleansing.
1: Waste of money. We'll have to address this next week on the home stretch as we get closer to the day. My goodness, I'll enjoy, Bobby. Have fun. Keep all of your limbs. That sort of thing. And we'll get a report back, I guess, on Monday. And then we'll also know where Northwestern is headed. And by extension, I am likely headed next week. So much excitement ahead. Arizona on tap. Heading off to the airport here in a few hours. Don't forget about Bonus Benson over the weekend if you just need to scratch that Guy Benson show itch. Back here on Monday for brand new programming. Looking forward to that. Have a great weekend. Thank you for listening. It's the Guy Benson Show.